Robert Kagan is a contributing columnist for The Washington Post and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's worked in the State Department, including as principal speechwriter for Secretary of State George Shultz. His new book, The Jungle Grows Back, America and Our Imperiled World, is enormously stimulating and more than a little depressing. I'm eager to talk with him and pleased he could join us today here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Well, thanks again for stopping in, Bob. Great to see you, Cliff. You know, this is a funny way to start, but years ago, when I was sent off by the New York Times to open a bureau in Africa, I read a lot of books on Africa. And my favorite one, the most influential for me, was um, A Bend in the River by V.S. Naipaul. And the theme of that book is that in Africa, the jungle grows back literally and metaphorically. And in a way, and I thought of that for Africa, where civilization is hard to implant, but in a way, it seems to me you're saying that in America— it's not so different. The jungle grows back here. It grows back in Europe. The jungle grows back everywhere. We're not at all immune to that sort of thing that V.S. Naipaul was describing in, in A Bend in the River. Is that correct? Yeah. And my, you know, my reference to the jungle is not uh, toward the African jungle or, or a rainforest or anything. It's really just natural forces at work. And uh, the natural forces in the international system are that international politics – heads toward chaos and conflict naturally. You have to work to prevent that from happening. And in terms of human nature, human beings have conflicting impulses, some to do good, some to do bad, some that are selfish, some that are selfless, some that lead toward democracy, and some that lead toward tyranny. And there's always a constant struggle uh, in human nature. And if you look at the great sweep of history, uh, the darker side of human nature often emerges triumphant. So I've got a license to oversimplify. If I were to reduce your book to three sentences, they probably would be this. There is such a thing as a liberal world order. We'll talk about what that is. It's imperfect, but it's preferable to any other option currently available to us. But unless the U.S. defends it and invests in it, it will die sooner rather than later. I wasted a whole 163 pages. I could have done it in three sentences. But but yes, that is a, a perfect distillation of what I'm trying to say. Part of this and I, that, 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 we, that we need to make, I think, clear to people is there's an assumption that peace is the normal state of things. Countries develop unless something prevents them from developing. Poverty is not a natural state. Uh, historically, um, you're a historian. That is absolutely 100 percent wrong, isn't it? That's right. I mean, we're all sort of we're all children of the Enlightenment. Um, you know, America was founded on Enlightenment ideals, and and the general presumption of Enlightenment is that there's such a thing as progress, and not just scientific and technological progress, but human progress, moral progress. And if you read someone like Steven Pinker these days, he talks about all how much the world is better, how much humans treat each other better, 
He attributed he attributes it to the victory of enlightenment ideals. Frank Fukuyama attributed it to the victory of one idea in a Hegelian dialectic over other ideas. So we have this idea that mankind, humankind goes through stages of development, nations go through natural stages of development, all in one direction, which is toward liberalism and democracy. And of course, as you say, history tells us that really the opposite is true, that human beings throughout all of recorded history have generally lived under tyranny, have generally been poor, and have generally uh, been at war with one another. And so this period that we've been living through is unusual, abnormal, uh, unnatural, and it requires a great effort to keep it going. Yeah, and, and, and there is this it's, – it's sort of a determinist idea and, I, and of course it's in Marxism. It's in many things um, that it's, – it's, it's a little like saying all chimpanzees eventually will become humans because that's the way evolution is meant to go. And anybody who knows anything about Darwinism or about evolution knows that's not actually the case at all. But we had President Obama saying the arc of history bends towards justice. Actually, the arc of history, we have no idea which way it's bending. Yeah, there is no arc of history. I mean, we look back at history and we create a pattern. So we say you go from the ancient Greeks to the Renaissance to the Reformation to where we are today as if there is steady progress. There's a line that points upward. Um, but in fact, if you look at history, there are ups and downs. There's progress and then there's regress. Every other civilization has not viewed the world in terms of progress. The ancients saw the world operating in a cyclical fashion. So you had the rise of great empires and the fall of great empires. The Chinese, I think, have no idea of progress at all. I think they believe in a static uh, world that, that doesn't really fundamentally change. So we have this idea that things are always moving in a certain and generally positive direction. Nothing in history suggests that that's true. Right. So times of, in history, times of peace have generally been a, a, an, an interval between wars, a time to build big walls around your city and sharpen your spears and learn to use them more effectively. Yeah, I mean, it, we've already in the last century and a half or so lived through at least two, if not three periods where the great mass of humans, certainly in what we call the West, was convinced that war was obsolete. Right before World War I, there was a whole plethora of books and arguments about how war between the great powers had become impossible. What's more, we're going to outlaw it. Just, and, we'll just well, pass and, and of course, it was outlawed uh, in 1928, and uh, you know we saw how that worked. And then again, after the end of the Cold War, we had all these theories about how there was no such thing as geopolitics; it was all going to be about geoeconomics, and that the world was converging around liberal democracy. And as I say, these are creations of our own mind; they don't reflect history. What history tells us is that nothing is determined. And you know, I've been sort of watching as we all have really since 30 years ago the argument was democracy is inevitable. Today the argument is democracy is doomed. Uh, and my feeling is enough with the determinism already. Let's mm -hmm. just understand that it's always a struggle and that we are always engaged in the struggle. And that's sort of what the metaphor of the garden and jungle that I'm talking about is. If you're a gardener, you know that you don't plant a garden, walk away and assume that it's still going to be there in a week. Uh, you know that there are going to be weeds and vines and all those elements of nature that want to take back the land that you cultivated. And so therefore, as a gardener, you're constantly struggling against the weeds and the vines to keep your garden intact. It's the same way with the liberal world order. It has to be actively defended. Which also means you're going to be fighting bad guys 
forever, this That's idea right. of, oh, it's an endless war. When does it end? No, it never ends. Right. And of course, we don't like to think that way. And who can blame us? Because that's not a very pleasant uh, way to look ahead at the world. You know, Hans Morgenthau, the great founder of modern realism, who I'm not normally a big fan of on, on some issues, but he said something that was very true, which is that Americans, and I would say this is true of most liberal peoples, are always waiting for the, the last curtain to fall and the great drama of geopolitics to end. Um, but it never ends. It's, a, it's always uh, ever-present. We know this, I think, in our domestic lives. We know that crime is something that you can't stop fighting. It's not like, well, look how much crime has dropped in New York. I guess we don't need police anymore. But that is sort of the way we look at the international system. Wars had been brought to an end by a strong force. Now we don't need the force anymore. And that's the kind of backwards thinking that we're all too um, susceptible to. Uh, I'm just. I'm going to digress for a second. The New York Times has called you a conservative. You work for the Brookings Institution, which is thought of as liberal. Others have said you're neoconservative. How do you how do you uh, identify and uh, yourself? How do you or stereotype yourself? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I you know all these all these things are just ways of trying to put labels on people's thought. I mean, I I regard myself as a I guess I would say a liberal realist. So. I'm a realist in the sense that I believe that power is a, a major, if not the major, determining factor of how the world operates. So I believe democracy has uh, succeeded because the world's strongest nation and then a collection of strong nations were democracies, uh, that, there is, that it was not inevitable and that if the world's strongest nation were an autocracy, uh, you would see the spread of autocracy around the world. So – you know, but I believe, but I'm a I'm a liberal in the sense that I want to see the progress that we've seen. I believe we should work for that progress, but you can't get the progress without the power behind it. That's the bottom line. So you make the point, and it's an important one, that after World War II, we went into the period we're in now, and it's an exceptional period by historical standards. In many ways, it's a it, 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 there have been conflicts, there have been wars, there have been terrible things, whether Vietnam, other things. But by historical standards, there has been something you call the liberal world order uh, or the rules-based order. I'm not sure there's a, if there's a difference between them. You need, to, you need to explain to me what that is and explain to our listeners what that is. But that this is an exceptional period. So two things. One is ex just elaborate on this being an exceptional period people like you and I have been living in since our, since our birth and the danger that that period could be coming to an end, which is really what this book is, is mostly about. Yes, again, as we've been saying, I mean, if you look at the broad sweep of human history, democracy is the rarest form of government. I mean, prior to the 20th century, in any case, there, you know, there were democracies were so few and far between that they were basically accidental. There was no democracy. And yet we've seen in this period since 1945, the explosion of democracy. There are over a hundred democracies in the world, uh, today, completely unprecedented, completely different from anything that's happened in the past. Secondly, in terms of human prosperity, throughout all of recorded history, and I'm quite sure through unrecorded history before that, the great 99.9% .9 of all humans lived in a state of abject poverty. Uh, since World War II, we've seen something like 4% 
annual GDP growth. So you've seen 4 billion people lifted out of poverty and into the middle class. You've seen the growth of, of people of the economy of China and India and elsewhere. Again, completely unprecedented. And then finally, as we've also been discussing, the fact that there's been no great power wars. Now, there have been wars uh, that Americans have been involved with, but the kind of cataclysmic struggle between the, between the great powers that we saw in World War I, in World War II, in the Napoleonic Wars at the end of the 18th and early 19th century, in the Thirty Years' War, which devastated a third of Europe, the kinds of conflicts among great powers that were so common and so destructive, we've been spared during this period. That makes it a unique period. All, any one of those three would make it unique. The three of them together make it extraordinary and unusual. Okay, so your book is a celebration of the liberal world order, but it's a li- it, it, it comes close to a eulogy as well because what you're also saying, and again, I want you to talk about this, is that this period of relative peace and relative prosperity, but probably unprecedented for both, is very much imperiled right now, very much in danger. It's always imperiled precisely in a way because it is unnatural. It's not where history would normally lead. If you want to know where history was leading, look at the world in 1939. That's where history was leading. You know, multipolar, competitive, armed, aggressive powers, most of them dictatorships. Uh, We saw that evolving from the 19th century on and culminating in the two world wars. This period has been the aberration, not that period. And But the most important thing is that it's fragile and it depends entirely on the role of the United States. Now, uh, that's not because the American people are especially virtuous. They're not. That's not because they're especially intelligent. They're not. America has got all the flaws that human beings have. But partly as a simple matter of geography, partly as a matter of wealth and power, uh, the United States not choosing to but found itself in the position of being the only power that could sustain this kind of international system. And you know, you asked me to talk about the liberal world order. I think a lot of people when they hear liberal world order, they hear a lot of idealistic notions and you mentioned rules-based uh, order and and you know, I think it sounds like uh, airy fairy let's uh, you know, just make things uh, make the world a better place. You know, the founders of the liberal world order were anything but optimists and in a way anything but idealists. You look at people like Franklin Roosevelt and Dean Acheson and Harry Truman and George Kennan. They were pessimists about human nature and why wouldn't they be? They'd seen everything that human nature was capable of, uh, what the international system turned into in the absence of order in those first four and a half decades of the 20th century. And what they created that we call the liberal world order uh, was not intended to transform humanity. It was intended to contain the worst elements of human existence and prevent sliding back to the chaos and disorder and horrors of the first half of the 20th century. They, in a sense, were setting up a defensive mechanism to keep uh, the jungle from taking over as it had uh, in the middle, uh, you know, by the by the middle of the 20th century. So the liberal world order is not about idealism in a way. It's about pessimism. Much as the founders of the American Republic took a pessimistic view of, of, of human nature and designed a system to control and channel those baser instincts that human beings have, that's the order that we have constructed. And it's at risk. 
uh, because unless we sustain it, no one else can. It isn't a question of whether you know it's right for us or wrong for us. We're the only ones who can do it. So let's talk about some of the reasons it's at risk. One of them, it seems to me, is that people on both the left and the right have grown uncomfortable with American leadership. You have uh, on the right the people who call themselves realists who say, don't go abroad hunting for bad guys. Do not try to support democratic governance in places where it's impossible to have it. I think a lot of people thought, I don't think it's, it turned out to be true, that uh, President Trump was going to be an isolationist. I don't think his record supports that, but I think I feared that he might go in that direction. There are certainly plenty of people at Harvard and Chicago and other places who are teaching who who essentially want America to be non-interventionist. That's the word they would use. At the same time, there are plenty of people on the left who say, who, you know, Fareed Zakaria, who wants to see the rise of the rest. That's what we need. And America shouldn't be so imperialist, shouldn't be so hegemonic, shouldn't. American primacy is a danger. And by the way, many of our allies in Europe are very distrustful of American sovereignty, of our demands on them. How dare we tell Iran uh, that we are going to sanction them until we get our get our way on, on, on terrorism and missiles and nuclear weapons? They're going to go around us, and if we try to use the power of the American dollar, they'll go around that. So, we, so this idea of American leadership and responsibility, really, which you say is absolutely essential, is right now at risk at least from the left, the right, from our European allies, and certainly from our adversaries who want to undermine us. All of them are right now against us. Am I wrong? I, I, don't, I don't know about – let's set aside the allies for a second, which is a complicated story. But let's just talk about – let's start by talking about the American domestic political scene. You know, it's funny to hear you talk about left and right. I'm sure Fareed Zakari would call himself a realist, not a person on the left. I doubt that the realists that you described would describe themselves as on the right. But in any case, it, it, what, I think, what I think we should say is there is an, an extraordinary consensus – Left, right, and center, your average American is saying and has been saying for some time, remind us again why we're doing this. Um, didn't the Cold War end? Isn't the Soviet Union gone? Um, you know, we've done a poor job of educating Americans. I, I even read uh, Graham Allison talking about how the liberal world order was a response to the Cold War. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, just as a historical matter, the liberal world order was founded during – was envisioned during World War II uh, by people like Roosevelt and Atchison and Marshall and others before they even knew there was going to be a Soviet enemy. They thought the Soviet Union was going to be an ally after the war just as it had been during the war and they certainly didn't envision a cold war and I want to emphasize what they were trying to do was create a system that would prevent a return to the 1930s not deal with the Soviet Union so therefore it didn't the, the obligation to do this or the responsibility to do this didn't actually end with the Soviet Union nevertheless that is the way Americans have perceived it and so I think everyone across the board says can't we be doing less can't we have the allies do more why are the allies you know free riding uh, on our dollar aren't they rich enough to take care of themselves and all of these are totally understandable questions. The United States has been carrying and the American people have been carrying an abnormal responsibility. No nation in history has ever taken the responsibility for global security and global order the way the United States has. Nothing could be more natural than to do as Jean Kirkpatrick recommended after the end of the Cold War in 1990. She wrote an article saying it's time for the United States to return to being a normal nation again. 
Um, so Americans say, why can't we be just like everybody else, looking out for ourselves first? And I think left, right, center, it doesn't matter. That is a consistent view. And it's very hard to explain, or at least it requires, I think, a lot of history to explain why that isn't um, that isn't as, as attractive as that sounds, the consequences of it are so much worse than Americans imagine. And that's where I fault these realists of left, right and center. You know, uh, Barack Obama's uh, assistant Ben Rhodes wrote a book called The World As It Is and this was a mantra of the Obama administration. Let's accept the world as it is. It's a realist statement. You know, it's hubris to think that we can change uh, the world. Let's accept it as it is. It sounds perfectly reasonable except to my mind, they don't know what the world as it is really looks like. We've been living in this bubble of the liberal world order. The world as it is is the world of 1939. We always fear the pro- what what if we act, what bad could we do? What could go wrong? And things always do go wrong, of course. We don't seem to understand that inaction also has its consequences. So the fact that President Obama decided not to do anything when peaceful protesters in 2011 in Syria were getting mowed down by Bashar al-Assad, that's had consequences. The fact that he decided we don't need to be in Iraq. We can take out all of our troops. It'll be just fine. And that led to the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq. That's the product of inaction as well. This is part of what you talk about, that where Ben Rhodes, I think, is so wrong that that we have to act. That doesn't mean everything we do will have the consequences we want. But inaction is not a, is not safe. We're obsessed with acts of commission and blind to acts of omission, which is, you know, it's a flip from where we were after World War II. The people who created the liberal world order were worried about acts of omission, which is what America had committed in the 1920s and 30s by standing back and not doing anything about the fact that the world order was breaking down all around them. And so they wanted to make sure that we were engaged and involved uh, in different parts of the world where these issues were critical, even when it led to excess. And it did lead to excess because as you rightly say, there's no way to wield power without making mistakes. There's no way to wield power without engaging in the moral ambiguities of wielding power. And this is something that Americans are very uncomfortable with and, and understandably so. But, you know, I always recur back to Reinhold Niebuhr who addressed this issue, the great, you know, Christian theologian who was regarded as what they called him a Christian realist. But his argument was you need to be aware that wielding power has moral consequences, not all of which put you on the right side, that there's going to be immoral behavior when you wield power. Understand that. Be humble about it. But that doesn't mean you don't have to do anything. And he argued that even despite the moral ambiguity, it was it was it was immoral not to act as well. And that that's something I think Americans need to to think more about. This is a slightly different way of saying it. A lot of Americans, uh, I think, think, wouldn't it be wonderful to be like Denmark? And what they don't understand is that Denmark can be Denmark only because America is America. Without that, it's not possible. Well, I think Americans, even today, even with the communications revolution, even with the internet, even with how much, how quickly you can get around the planet, even with intercontinental ballistic missiles, they still feel like there's there's these two big oceans, right? The world is far away from us and we still have the mentality, I think, that foreign policy is optional for us. 
uh, if we'd like to do things, we can. But also we could just sort of pull back and let the world take care of itself. It's not isolationism really. It's more a desire for irresponsibility. It's a desire not to bear the burdens of responsibility. And we've gone through that repeatedly throughout our history. Is the concept that we that there are wars of choice and wars of necessity, is that a fallacy? I think it's a fallacy because for the United States, I would say every war we ever engaged in was a war of choice. And that's the one reason why we often have such morally ambiguous feelings about sure. it. You know, by the way, the revolution was a choice. Absolutely. We could have continued living under British rule. It wouldn't have been the end of the world either, by the way. Be <laughs> you know, uh, World War One was certainly a choice. People don't think World War II was a choice. It was a choice. I, I don't think this is unfair, but tell me, Pat Buchanan would probably say World War II was a choice and we didn't and a mistake. need to fight it. No, yeah. he not, yeah, not that we didn't need to fight it. It was well, actually it was a, mistake a mistake because he said, look what happened. It gave the Soviet Union half of Europe, which is true, which is by true. the way. Yeah. The, you know, there are no wars that don't have unforeseen and unpleasant consequences even after you've won. This is something Americans don't like to think, but – as we say here, there are no permanent victories, only permanent battles. So yes, you liberate Europe from the Nazis, and yes, half of half of Europe is then oppressed by the Soviets for the next seventy years. And yes, the Soviet Union collapses, and no, Russia does not become a democratic society. Or absolutely, or yes, we help the Mujahideen defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan, and then the Mujahideen becomes our enemy and starts trying to kill us. You know, I mean, th this is the way the world operates. And it's a very unpleasant reality. Um, and Americans would like to avert themselves, avert their gaze from this reality. But there, there really is, it will come back and bite us at some point if we don't address it. So let me quibble with you on something. The When we talk about Denmark, we talk about Germany, our allies, uh, you say we shouldn't be pushing on such things as free riding at a certain point. You know, yes, for a long time, we had a sort of sort of affirmative action with Europe. They had to come back from terrible devastation to World War II. But at this point, shouldn't they be partners, not just beneficiaries? The Germans could afford to have a good military, whether you want them to or not. They could. They don't. And the Germans are being protected by us, and they're pursuing such things as Nord Stream 2, which is President Trump has objected to it, which would be a gas pipeline that will make them more dependent than ever on Russia at a time when we're protecting them. That seems to me, I think there's a reason to complain about that. Norway is boycotting American firms that produce what they call disfavored weapons. These weapons are meant to, and nuclear weapons as well. They don't like nuclear weapons, but they're protected by our nuclear weapons. They shouldn't be coming after us for that. I think there's a reason to say, and I'm a supporter of NATO, but... Nonetheless, I don't. Th I think there's a reason to say our allies are not doing all they need to do to make this a partnership, which at this point in history it should be. I think that that's, that's undoubtedly true. And if you go back through the cold, there's nothing new about this either. I mean, if you go yeah, back through the Cold War, <laughs> no. And there's a reason why it hasn't been corrected, and that's what I'm going to get to. I mean, it is. At every stage, you are making a choice. The United States is making a choice. Uh, sure, we can try to ask our allies to do more and we have consistently asked our allies to do more and they haven't always done more. Sometimes they've done more. Sometimes they've done less. I think it is worth remembering that in Afghanistan, they did fight with us. They, they did uh, – there are troops in 
in Afghanistan today that are Europeans. And let me tell you, they have the Europeans have no interest in Afghanistan whatsoever. There have been many times when Europeans have engaged in, in, next to the United States in wars, which they engaged in only because the United States was involved. So let's not paint a too black and white picture here. Um, but but the question of whether we really want Europeans, how much we want Europeans to arm themselves, goes back to the creation of this particular order. You yourself said <laughs> Germany could rearm itself, whether we want it to or not, is another question. Well, it's not another question. It actually is the question. Um, I prefer a Germany that is afraid of arming itself to a Germany that is eager to arm itself. Now, we would like Germany to be the Pacific liberal peace-loving Germany that arms itself. But as we all know, arming oneself doesn't usually go along with peace-loving uh, Pacific nation. And uh, you have to be willing to use it. And so the, the, the concern I have right now is in fact precisely that both Germany and Japan will be driven in some cases uh, willingly, I think in Japan, perhaps in Germany less willingly, precisely to start building up their military to protect themselves against a world that we have helped allow break down. Um, we never supported these allies and allowed them to become in effect free riders because we were trying to do them a favor. We did this because we decided that that world was in our interest. Let's not forget the core bargain and the core transformation that was accomplished by World War II and after World War II by American power was converting Germany and Japan from the, from the two dictatorial aggressor states that they had been to Pacific uh, democratic economic powerhouses. If you want to ask me what is the nut – what are the two pillars of the liberal world order, it's, it's democratic Germany and democratic Japan and wealthy Germany and wealthy Japan. That was the core of a peaceful – wealthy Europe, the core of a peaceful Asia. Um, I think we should not lose sight of the fact that it was our deliberate strategy to deny them a geopolitical role. And for us to now to be turning around because we are spending, what, 4% of our GDP on defense, which is historically low uh, for the United States, I, I just think we need to be careful and remember what we're really looking for here. You point out that the transition that Japan and Germany underwent, that was made possible more than anything by a prolonged U.S. military occupation. Indeed, one can say that it continues to this day. By the same token, if we were serious about transforming the Middle East, should we not have kept a prolonged military occupation in Iraq? There would be that if you wanted to do that. That's how it had to be done. This is now this. And what I'm saying here, as you know, a lot of people say, oh, no, they're defending May is defending the Iraq war. And maybe I am. But I'm also saying if you're going to do that, stay long enough to have an impact. Well, I have to say there were many mistakes made in the case of, of Iraq, uh, but I, certainly one of the biggest was withdrawing all the troops um, uh, after 2010. The truth is we had Iraq in a fairly stable political situation and there was no need to pull out the several thousand American troops that it would have been necessary to maintain that stability. You know, we have still – you talk about we have troops in Germany and Japan. We have troops yeah. in Korea yeah. and Korea is one of the great success stories uh, of the modern world. You know, it went – another place that went from being South a tyranny, Korea. South Korea, <laughs> went from being, you know, a poor uh, non – 
liberal tyranny to being one of the thriving economic democracies in the world and a source of real stability in the international system. So yes, I think that – and by the way, there are places where Americans still have troops stationed that the most Americans don't even know is the case. We still have troops in the Balkans that nobody thinks about. Um, I don't know if we still have troops in the – well, you had troops in the Sinai until recently. I think we may still have troops in the Sinai. But in any case, we've had troops deployed providing a stabilizing role at a very low number for years and years and years and Americans have been perfectly tolerant of that. So it was so foolish and so disastrous to pull our troops um, out of Iraq when a very small number could have accomplished a great deal. All right. Moving on to another subject but very – those who who set up this internet, liberal international order, the people you talked about, Truman and Marshall and, uh, and others – one of the, perhaps the main institution that was meant to be a pillar was the United Nations. And there's a declaration, a universal declaration of human rights, because we're all going to believe in this. Well, you know, and I know that most nations in the world don't believe in anything in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and that they, they observe it in the breach. And we also, I think, know that the United Nations has been a terrible failure, corrupt morally and in many other ways as well. And if we are going to uphold this liberal world order, do we not need institutions to do it? And does this institution not need reform that may not be impossible to enact? Well, you know, the founders' attitude toward the United Nations was was uh, was complicated. I, uh, Dean Acheson hated the United Nations, and he thought it was not only uh, uh, worthless but worse than worthless because it led Americans and others to have the illusion that you could have uh, peace maintained by this kind of international institution. Acheson couldn't have been clearer in saying that peace would be maintained by American power. Or not at all. Or not at all. And so uh, for him and I think for a lot of Americans, the United Nations was something that you know people wanted because Wilson had proposed the League of Nations and it was regarded as one of the great failures that the United States stayed out of the League of Nations. And also, I think the United Nations offered a cover for the United States. You know, Americans never wanted to say what Atchison said quite as baldly as that, which is this is all about American power, folks. So if you have a United Nations, it feels like, uh, no, that's not the case. We're sharing with other people. Others are also taking responsibility. But it also lifts some of the moral costs of wielding power. You know, it's not just that we're the big bully. Every When we first went to war in Korea, it was under the umbrella of the United Nations and Americans would like to think that that's what we're doing all the time. But the truth is the United Nations is only as strong as we make it. Um, when it has succeeded, it's because it's been our effort to make it succeed. I don't consider it to be particularly dangerous. I'm not worried about black helicopters. I'm not worried about its impingement on American sovereignty. Um, I just don't take it very seriously as a real source of peace in the world. Yes, but if – and you mentioned this in the book as well and we'll get to a few more questions and then, and, and then we'll let you go. We – 
if the U.S. needs the authorization of the U.N. to exercise force— We felt that we needed that. Well, we should understand <laughs> that. But there are those who think that the U.N. makes laws for the world. There are, And we continually, in one administration after another, maybe less so this one, talk about international norms as though that were a real thing, that the international community believes as if that were true. Look, you've got Russia and you've got China on the Security Council. They don't have— any of the beliefs we have about human rights, about individual freedom, about uh, about about the rule-based order, any of that. And then you've got the General Assembly, which is only worse. It's largely a collection of dictatorships um, that do all kinds of terrible things. You've got the human, UN Human Rights Council, which is a collection of the worst violators pretending to, that they are something uh, other than they are. I mean, this if this is a pillar of the, uh, uh, of the international order, it's full of holes well, and I, rotted wood. I, I definitely, you know, I think I've been very clear about what I mean by the liberal world order and I don't think I even mentioned the United Nations in that regard. And I, I even object to the idea of a rules-based order because it, on economic issues, I think there have been rules and I think that's been a good thing by the way because I think it was important that other members of the liberal world order believe that the United States was going to play by the rules on the economic side so that they had a fair field. I think that was a key part of their buy-in uh, to the system. But when it comes to strategic matters and military and the wielding of military power, the United States has never abided by any rules really. We've, we've always acted when we thought was necessary and the world has basically winked at it. You know? And you know, even when they vote against us in the UN Security Council, they don't really oppose our actions. They don't take any steps really to oppose our actions. So I think in a way – we need to grow up a little bit about these things. There, the UN can be an annoyance. It certainly, uh, you know, says the wrong things many times. The human rights organization of the UN is ridiculous for the reasons that you talk about. But that's not what makes the world go around. What makes the world go around is the United States and uh, and its allies. Sometimes, mostly, what makes the world go around is the United States. So final question: If we are to keep the jungle from growing back. To quote Lenin, what is to be done? Well, I think you know we need to go back. The American people need to go back to understanding why all of this matters. I do think that whether it's because generations have passed, people don't remember World War II, they don't remember the 1930s. I don't know how much they're taught anymore in class about these things. Most Americans don't even remember the Cold War anymore. And so we're kind of flying blind forward into this world and all they can see around them are the costs of maintaining the liberal world order. They've come to take its existence and all the benefits for granted. I wish that our political leaders felt some obligation as well as our educators and our academics, which they don't unfortunately to go back to explaining, uh, which I try to do in this book, let's be realistic about what the actual alternatives are. Let's remember what history has taught us. What they need to do is is to, is to start by reading your book. The, the, no question about that. Look, I've got pages more questions, but we're out of time. This has been fascinating. Uh, I think what you're talking about is hugely important for America and for the world. I think we are in an imperiled times. So, Bob Kagan, thank you so much for being with us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. 
We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.